Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my pretty partner, Ravinder, and our lovely chat room monitor, Andrea, await you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. I do love our chat room, and we have some truly great folks that join us each week. So, Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. We do have a great chat room, and it provides a real service. I had uh, several phone calls and emails from people who uh, tuned into the show last week trying to get the Earl for the CD that Mario Beauregard was talking about, and that was linked straight into the chat room. So if you want more information on that, you know, go look at the chat room from last week and you'll get that. And, you know, with all of our shows, whenever there is an important link or extra information, we put it right in there. So it becomes a great resource, along with, you know, just joining a really good group of people that, you know, I'm always learning from them. I find it a privilege. So do come in and join us. That is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right. Well, in our spotlight this week, we're going to bring attention to some interesting things, including Ravinder. So I'm going to turn us to thinking about mythic creatures. I'm scared. You've got that look on your face. (laughs) You're going to do something. Last week, I posted a photo on Facebook uh, with this statement. Did giants really inhabit the earth at some time in history, as the Bible says? The quote from Genesis 6 and 4 goes this way, quote, The giants were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown, close quote. Now the picture I posted, while appearing legitimate, turns out to be a Photoshop production that shows a team of archaeologists dusting the bones of a giant skeleton. This photo appeared on the Disclosed TV webpage with this copy, and I quote, A team of archaeologists have uncovered the skeletal remains of a giant in the Bulgarian city of Varna, located on the eastern shores of the Black Sea. Varna is now a major tourist attraction. The area has a rich culture, and its history goes all the way back to 5000 B.C., The oldest golden treasure in the world was found during excavations at the Varna Necropolis, and carbon dating revealed it was buried more than 6,500 years ago. The giant skeleton was found earlier this month, buried near the remains of Odessa's ancient city wall. It is estimated that the giant human lived and died during the 5th century A.D. Close quote. Nowadays, it can be hard to know the truth from fiction, for the page appears genuine, as does the article that accompanies it. Only when one discovers the separate components of the photo does it become clear that this is a hoax. That said, one hoax does not disqualify the possibility that giants inhabited the earth at some time in the past. 
Of course, giant beings could just be another mythical creature as well. We may have many modern stories of everything from Bigfoot to Nessie and Loch Ness Monsters, uh, but, you know, are these really only modern myth creatures? Is it possible, for real, I mean, think about it, is it possible that El Chupacabra, the goat sucker, with alien-like eyes, is actually sucking blood from its prey somewhere still today? Or how about the Jersey Devil? According to folklore, a New Jersey area woman gave birth to a cursed monster with a horse's head, bat wings, and cloven hooves. There are many myths and legends that we could discuss, and today's guest may help us to clarify some of these stories. But first, Ravinder wants to share her personal story regarding werewolves and vampires. You see, Ravinder has <laughs> had a close encounter of the twilight variety, and what's more, she has infected as many as she could. So since it's April Fool's, I'll just let her tell you all about it. So, Rav, where are you hiding the bite marks? Where am I hiding the bite marks? Where are you coming from? You've been drinking something? <laughs> no. I mean, Twilight, you're completely addicted to the werewolves and the vampires. You're reading the books, have to see the movies. You cheeky so-and-so. The books were fun. That was a few years ago. They... Yeah, I found I found the books fun. I will not deny that. But no, I am not infatuated with vampires and werewolves. It's just a little bit of fun, that's all. Okay, so all I can say, honey, is April Fool's. I told you I was going <laughs> to pick on, on you today. me. You just pick on me. <laughs> but today's guest, uh, well, she's going to discuss with us some real giants. But before we get to that. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week, we enjoyed a wonderful conversation with Dr. Mario Beauregard. I must say, this was one of my all-time favorite shows. Dr. Beauregard spoke openly to us both as a scientist and a human being, and his research should be required reading for anyone interested in understanding the role of brain and mind as well as consciousness itself. We learned that science informs us that we live in a sea of consciousness, for everything has some form of consciousness, even at a subatomic level. Now, our conversation formed an analogy in my mind, and I'll share that with you. Imagine an outdoor bonfire after dark with embers flying into the air. Every ember is a part of the fire disappearing as you watch. Consciousness may be analogous to this, where our individual consciousness becomes an ember when physical death occurs. Not lost, just unseen, changed. The trick may be to keep our individual consciousness collected together, to wake up in the afterlife, so to speak, so it doesn't break down and separate after death. Perhaps it is this breakdown that mystics address when they explain the dissolution of consciousness for truly sociopathic lives, the serial killers and the like, thereby forcing that consciousness, that particular consciousness, to reorganize in some other way. That was my takeaway anyway, and when I shared it with Dr. Beauregard's reply, and I quote, this is wonderful. 
Okay, Sydney Remark, I enjoy the show very much. Leslie wrote, thank you, I am an avid listener. I love your show. Wendy wrote, great work as always. I love what you do. Jack wrote, so we really don't have free will because, as you pointed out, we must work to will anything so it can't be free. I like that, and it sounds so true. Richard wrote, all my research on self-management and discipline suggests the same modality of existence. One has very little self-control in the moment. The task is to structure the environment in a way that predisposes the brain to behave in desired ways. We are managers of our brain, not necessarily its easy masters. It's a perfect adjunct to Eldon's material. It is great, lucid, easy to put into effect model of human existence. It has that sense of aha that all good models of the universe possess. CB commented, fun show, lots to check out, super guest, very informed about his field for sure. I hope that fMRI will someday be able to determine if people in comas are still inside their heads someplace. Connie wrote, I listened to your program frequently when you were with Hay House. I so look forward to following your work again now on your new network. Bean wrote, why would you guys completely stop doing the show forever? You guys were such a great help and lifeline. Now, what Connie and Bean are referring to is our YouTube channel. We posted our last Hay House show on the channel just this past week and discovered that many of you were still unaware that our show had moved to a new home with a syndicated outlet. So for all of you who just found us again, we want to welcome you to our new home. And Bean, we have no plans to give up our show, nor will we, as long as we can feel it provides a service and we continue to have fun doing it. For those of you unfamiliar with our channel, you can catch all of our shows past and present there, or subscribe by going to YouTube forward slash Progressive Awareness. Okay, Robert wrote, I just wanted to share with you that I have read your book, Choices and Illusions, two times since I purchased it a while back. I started reading it again yesterday and had quite an impact compared to the first two times, and today has been a wonderful experience compared to many others. You, Wayne Dyer, and Richard Bandler have had an impact on me, and for that I wanted to say thanks. I'm looking forward to you being a guest on my show entitled Living Consciously. I've also read your book Mind Programming and all of your other books, too. It has been a long haul as 31 years without drinking, 29 without tobacco, and 14 since I was suicidal and went into the hospital. Thank you. Life is good. Well, congratulations, Robert, and I, too, look forward to sharing on your show. Stephanie wrote, thank you for such an amazing radio show. It is truly thought-provoking and entertaining. And Noor wrote, I think your work is amazing. I listen to your radio shows on YouTube almost every day. They're very inspiring, also because I'm currently studying psychology at university. Your inner talk method is very interesting, and I will definitely inform a lot of people here in the Netherlands. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show, Sky People, Untold Stories of Alien Encounters in Mesoamerica. The Untold Stories of Alien Encounters is the result of a vow made by Dr. Artie Sixkiller Clark, 
as a teenager to follow in the footsteps of two 19th century explorers, John L. Stevens and Frederick Catherwood, who brought the ancient Maya cities to the world's attention. Dr. Clark set out on a seven-year adventure through Belize, Honduras, Guatemala, and Mexico, collecting stories of encounters, sky gods, giants, little people, and aliens among the indigenous people. She drove for more than 12,000 miles, visiting 89 archaeological sites and conducting nearly 100 individual interviews. Dr. Artie Sixkiller Clark brings to the field of ufology degrees in history, English, psychology, and educational leadership and a background as a teacher, university professor, junior college and university administrator, licensed therapist and psychologist, and social science researcher. As a professor emeritus at Montana State University and former director of the Center for Bilingual Multicultural Education, Dr. Clark, who is Cherokee Choctaw, has worked with indigenous people for most of her career. Dr. Clark established and personally funded a scholarship program at Montana State University for American Indian students. The purpose of the scholarship is to provide funding to American Indian students pursuing four-year degrees in elementary or secondary education. Awards are made annually and are based on need and academic excellence, and many of the past recipients of the scholarship have noted that without such funding, they would have been unable to continue their studies. In addition to her initial monies contribution to the fund, she endows it further with 10% of all her book sales, as an ongoing donation. So on that, let's get her in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Artie Sixkiller Clark. Hello. How are you today? I'm fine. How are you? I'm excellent. I understand you're kind of coming back from a flu and a little bit of hoarseness. So um, if you need a break or you want to, you know, get a glass of water or something. I have everything right here at a hand. You do. All right. Well, that's... I'm prepared. How could I expect less from a professor emeritus? (laughs) All right, Dr. Clark, we like to establish three things in our interviews. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And how do we use it? So to that end, let's begin by having you tell us about yourself. What were you like as a youngster? What were your ambitions? And when you look at yourself today... Have you changed at all? Are you still that little girl that you were then, just in a a more grown-up body? Or, you know, have you fulfilled your childhood ambitions? Well, uh, I think I have. You know, I, I um, uh, my parents, you know, were uh, uh, finished the eighth grade. Um, and uh, uh, my grandmother, you know, uh, she she could... Um, barely read. Um, uh, so I came from a family that that uh, uh, basically we were on the wrong side of the tracks, I guess. And and uh, um, uh, everyone always said, you know, you're going to go to college. You know, you're the you're the smart one. And and so um, and my brother too. And so we uh, both of us managed to go to school. And for me, you know, education was so important. Um, and I just kept going to school and, and, uh, completed, uh, mas- two masters and a doctorate 
and uh, so I realized I realized my dreams. I I had many along the way, you know. Like you said, when I was in high school, I I just vowed I was going to follow in the footsteps of Stevens and Catherwood, those two 19th century explorers that I I fell in love with when I read their books. You know, they had gone down to. Um, uh, Central America when um, no one really knew of those those cities. They had heard rumors that those cities existed and uh, all of their colleagues uh, discouraged them. They thought that it was just that, just rumors. And when I read their books, I said, this is something I got to do. I told my teacher, one day I'm going to follow in their footsteps. Well, it took me many years before I ever got to do that, but uh, uh when I retired at Montana State, I decided it was time to fulfill that dream. And um, I hadn't really planned on writing books. Uh, you know, my first book, Encounters with Star People, uh, Untold Stories of American Indians, I had been collecting um, uh, star people stories for 25, 30 years from uh, Native Americans. Um, and and had fallen into it, actually, you know, I, I grew up hearing star stories. And um, when my, um, uh, I, I came to Montana State University as an assistant professor uh, years ago, uh, uh, 1980 to, to be exact, I, uh, my first trip out in the field, one of the things I did is, uh, I was the director of the Center for Bilingual Multicultural Education. Well, what the center did was service. Um, we had 26 uh, travel groups in the Northern Plains area that the center serviced. And we uh, would go out and recruit Native American students to come to Montana State to study, um, uh, to become elementary and secondary teachers or principals and superintendents of school districts. When I first came here in 1980, there literally were it was almost non-existent teachers that were of Native American descent on teaching on reservations. There were very few. And so our goal at the university was to increase that number so students would have, you know, some role models. And um, on my first trip out to to uh, one of the reservations, I um, this man was assigned by the tribe to help me uh, meet with students to organize the meeting and everything. And, and uh, later we went out to dinner, and uh, when I was coming back through his reservation, he said to me, he said, if you got a few minutes, I want to show you something. And he took me up in the hills uh, above his village, and he parked, and um, he got a pair of binoculars, and, and we went out and we sat on this big boulder overlooking his village, and he said, if we're lucky, they'll come. And I said, well, who will come? And he said, well, the star people, the ancestors. And so he sat there that evening, and he told me all these different stories from his tribe about the star people. Well, on my way back to the university, I kept thinking, how many other tribes out there have these same stories about star people? So, of course, being an administrator and as well as a, as a professor, I, you know, traveled to bilingual multicultural conferences, um, Native American education conferences, and, and often spoke at these conferences. And 
So I, I began to, and uh, later I started doing research um, uh, on various reservations throughout um, uh, the U.S. And, and Alaska. And so I started, um, uh, I, I got to know a lot of people. And so I, would, I began asking stories about, you have stories about UFOs or star stories that you could tell me when I was in casual situations. And, and of course, the stories started to flow. And uh, I started collecting them. And, and I was collecting them for my own interest. I think just a validation of, of who I was and, and the stories of, of, of my, my grandparents and, and, uh, and so, um, um, I, I just kept doing that and, and then, you know, it was just a side interest. And I, I, um, uh, when I retired at MSU, I, um, uh, got a call one day and, and this individual said, you know, would you like to come out of retirement? Uh, we have a job for you. And, uh, they asked me to be an evaluator of a $5 million grant that had been awarded to a out-of-state tribe. And so I said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll check it out. And I went back to D.C. I went through a training um, of what was expected of the evaluator and, then I went down and I met with the with the tribal people and and I was having lunch with a group of women and and I don't know how the subject came up it was um, but the subject of UFOs came up and I began telling them some of the stories I collected. This one woman said, "Well, what are you going to do with those stories?" And I said, "Well, I don't have plans to do anything with them." And she said, "Well." You know, you really have a responsibility to do something with them. She says because that's part of our our oral history. I think you should write a book. And on my way back home, I kept thinking, now, do I want to write a book or do I want to commit to five years of doing this evaluation because it was a five-year project? And I decided I was going to write a book. So I sat down the next day and started going through all my notes and my tapes and and eliminating and choosing and 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 it was a laborious project because you know I collected over 900 stories at that at that point and um, so that's how it all began. That's that's a wonderful story, Doctor Clark. I'm going to ask you today about both of your books, uh, Star People and Sky People, uh-huh. and uh, and about. The creation stories themselves, uh, you know, wherever you go in the world, uh, cultures have their own unique creation stories, right. and those creation stories are full of metaphors um, and, and, and myths that aren't necessarily intended to be factual as much as they're te- intended to carry a tutorial message with them. Indeed, you know, one of my favorites is the Cherokee story or legend of two wolves. So maybe when we come back, you can tell us this legend. And, 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 the legend and of what? The, the legend of two wolves. Uh, the boy who has two wolves battling within him. Oh, you, okay. you know that? You know that legend, that story, right? It's well, t- I know the legend. I'm I'm not an expert on the legend, but I do okay, know the legend. Well, yes. All right. Well, when we come back from the break, let's talk about 
the tutorial level. What the the reason these myths exist is often to teach us something rather than to state a fact. And see if we can't separate that out. We're speaking with Darty, Dr. Artie Sixkiller Clark about her life, work, and book, Sky People, Untold Stories of Alien Encounters in Mesoamerica. To learn more about Dr. Clark, visit her website at Sixkiller, one word, S-I-X-K-I-L-L-E-R, Sixkiller.com. Okay, remember to join Ravinder and Andrea in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Ravinder and I love supporting causes we believe in. We both feel the pain when we see an animal abused. Call it empathy or what you will, the pain is very real. We both also celebrate with joy the wonderful stories of animal rehabilitation. Indeed, it can be goosebump time. We urge you to get involved and lend aid to your local animal shelter, or in the alternative, make your donations to the Humane Society of the United States. You can read about their work and make that donation by going to www.humanesociety.org. You can make a difference, but only if you act. Thank you. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Dr. Artie Sixkiller Clark about her life, work, and book, Sky People, Untold Stories of Alien Encounters in Mesoamerica. Now, we ask our guests for three pieces of music, three of their favorites, music that has some truly special significance to them. Music does impact us all in many ways. It can awaken lost memories and has even restored lost states of consciousness. Music affects our attention, memory, performance, and our choice in music has been linked to a number of personality traits, so there can be a great deal of disclosure in the selection of one's favorite music. Okay, we just played Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band performing Like a Rock. Why is this one special to you, Dr. Clark, and how does it tell us about who you are? Well, I think it's important to me because um, that's how I feel I've had to be, is like a rock. Uh, You know, um, I I shouldn't be standing here before you if, um, you know, contemporary um, discussions of... um, of youth that come from homes that um, are not well educated and uh, are poor and uh, who come from um, um, uh, situations that that um, you know um, I mean we, we I grew up without running water and bathrooms and all the all the things that that we consider. Um, you know that that people that are going to have a a doctorate are going to be people who come from homes where people are educated and are going to send their children and are at least middle class where they can afford it. And um, I didn't come from that. I came from a from a place where you know I got scholarships. Uh, there wasn't even the Pell Grant when I was going to school. There was no government assistance. Um, and so I had to make my own way, and I had to be strong. So that's why that song. How fitting! How very fitting! You, I, I have to ask you this, uh, Doctor Clark. First of all, you know, in the academic world, a lot of what you work with, um, especially UFOs, you know, that's that's that's. Not even fringe science. It's really looked upon with a good deal of scorn. Right. And, you know, we've talked to a number of pioneers, intellectual pioneers, who have pushed the edges of existing paradigms, and they've paid some big prices for it. Tenor's been denied. Uh, you know, they've been ostracized by their right. peers. What, what, I mean, I, in a certain to a certain extent, there would be respect for the fact that you are Native American and what you're looking at are Native American traditions. So there's a whole historical context here. But then the minute you start giving credibility to those stories, the minute you begin to you know, move to the side that says, well, there really are such things as UFOs, how did your how did your peers respond to that? Well, you know, <clears throat> I didn't do this while I was a professor at MSU. Um, you know, I'm, I I followed all the, the the rules and regulations, and even though I was collecting stories, it was something I did 
on the weekends and my holidays, uh, when I'd be out to dinner with people, when I'd be in informal situations, never during any kind of work time. So this was just my own interest, as I, as I stated. Um, <clears throat> and so after I retired um, is when, you know, I was, I told you I was called out of retirement by this travel group. Right. Um, just decided that um, it was time to do something about it. Now, I've heard from former colleagues, uh, two or three of them, who have praised the work and said, you know, we're just really proud that you did this. But nothing official, you know. I mean, <clears throat> I don't think that, uh, um, I don't think it would be looked upon. I think I would be dealing with the same situation as, as uh, uh, you know, uh, other professors who have gotten into into this field, um, I don't I don't suspect I would be treated any differently. But I'm retired. I'm, I've been given the you know uh, the title of professor emeritus. So basically, people leave me alone. Well, that perhaps is a smart way to do it. Listen, before <laughs> <Yeah>. the break, <laughs> before the break, I suggested that. Uh, the stories, the creation stories, the myths that uh, right. attend all cultures often aren't intended to be fact. Uh, they're intended to represent some teaching, some tutorial. Um, with regard to the stories that I'm going to have you share with us today, what your books are about, etc., do you see these stories as being historical factual, like, say, with the Bible, you know, there was a flood, and Noah's Ark is out there somewhere for us to find, or um, do you see it as a metaphor, uh, the metaphor speaking uh, about some level of teaching, some level of, uh, of uh, uh, some message that's supposed to, in some way or another, improve our lives? Well, you know, it's all of the above. Uh, some of the stories are are um, historical. They they tell you know the events that have, have occurred in history. Some of the stories are are for teaching, are metaphorical, like the you know the the two wolves story that you were talking about. Um, uh, some of them are simply uh, meant to entertain. Um, it's just, um, uh, I think it's, it's fairly, fairly, uh, if, if, if you are familiar with, uh, with American Indian legends, you can pretty yes. much figure out which ones, uh, which category they fall into. So I think they're all of those things that you mentioned. Okay, so now the stories then that you selected to put in your two books... What criteria did you use to say, you know, I'm going to share this story because I, I believe this is a factual story, or I'm going to share this story because it's an interesting story, or uh, what criteria did you apply in selecting the stories that you did choose to share? Well, um, I don't know if there was a criteria uh, that that you're that that would fit your description. I uh, 
Well, uh, use I yours simply, then. I, I simply, you know, um, uh, was in situations where I was able to talk with people and and ask them um, about star stories and if any of them had had experiences and people came forward and told me their stories. Obviously, there were people that uh, I questioned their stories, but the ones I included in my book, I did not. Uh, I, you know, uh, like I said, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, so I have, the, I, go ahead. Of the 900 or so stories that you had to go through, plus, I guess, because you just had the 900 on the one, um, the the stories you chose are the stories you believe to be credible. That's That's my question. Well, yes, and and there are <clears throat> many others. I don't want to say those are the only credible ones, but right. yes. One of the things I've been trying to do with my books is to show the variety of stories that are being told. You know, you um, when you go down to, to uh, Mexico and Guatemala and Honduras and you know, you're entering a, um, an environment where people don't have the access to media <clears throat> and to books and to television and all the things that go on in this part of the in in this part of of the Americas about UFOs. I mean, you turn on TV and it's the History Channel, it's the Discovery Channel, it's the National Geographic. Um, you know. Uh, uh, it's this constant bombardment of stories about UFOs. But I've gone into areas where people don't even have television. They don't have electricity. Um, they, you know, and, and those who do only may get a couple channels. Uh, and and certainly UFOs is not a common topic that they have on the TV shows there. Uh, so basically, you know, I'm interviewing a population that hasn't been highly influenced, and I think it's true of, na- of of the of the Native American stories I told. They they many of the the majority of the people were not influenced by TV. That was one of the things that that was of primary interest to me: how much knowledge they had of what was going on around the world. And then what I did is I said, okay, there's stories out there in mainstream. That deal with animal mutilation. There are stories that deal with abduction. There are stories that deal with with uh, medical experiments. There are stories that of uh, of the kind uh, tall whites. There are stories of the lizard people, and so on. And so, what I tried to do was to include in the book samples of each one of those to illustrate to my readers is that um, you know. What is being said in America, and people are saying, "Oh, it's just a part of fantasy and 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 influence of media and all these things." But go to an area that doesn't have those things, and they're still reporting the same thing. It has to make you think there must be some legitimacy to these stories. Interesting, interesting, or some collective consciousness. Listen, you you bring a television. We, we've hosted uh, Giorgio Sukulos on this show, and I know you know who he is. Sukulos has taken Eric Von Daniken's work to another level, and Chariots of the God is now represented, as you say, in History Channel's Ancient Aliens. So, right. you know, there's a three-hour Ancient Aliens debunked 
video as well that's aired, and it's on the Internet now free, that takes the Sukolo story apart, piece by piece. Bottom line, the body of science generally rejects this sort of alien theory. Now, that said, we've also hosted proponents of ufology like Stephen Greer, and they have marshaled some really convincing evidence, including statements from you know, reputable people like the former Canadian defense minister, Paul Hellyer, who flatly states that they have evidence UFOs are real. So my question to you then, you do this correspondence study, you see that wherever you go, the same kinds of stories are being told about, you know, UFOs, aliens visiting, etc., do you buy into the idea that's in chariots of the gods where, you know, the earth is seeded by aliens from outside? They come in here and, you know, in one area they teach the Egyptians pyramid building and higher technology. In another area they work with the Mayans doing the same thing. Do you buy that story? No. Absolutely Tell me why. Not. I think it's ethnocentric on the part of of uh, Eric von Daniken to you see you know if you are in his position you have to say that a group of of native people were intelligent enough to build these cities and I don't think that that has been the course of of Western history. It's always been that the non-indigenous are the most intelligent. They are the conquerors. They are the saviors. They are the people who have, um, you know. And so, it, to me, it's it's a very ethnocentric view. It's it's built on that. Even Stevens, it was really interesting to me that, as you read Stevens, um, um, who wrote the the early books about the Maya, when he went to Central America, he believed that someone else had built the pyramids and the ancient cities of the Central America. Mm -hmm. When he left, he was convinced and he wrote it in his book. No one else built them except the Maya. Now, I did encounter Maya who said they they traveled the universe, and they chose Central America and Mexico as their home, and they came from another world. Now, <clears throat> I've also read accounts and, and heard people talk about that different people, but, you know, at one time, we were all travel groups. But today, um, um, the Western thought has forgotten all the stories and all the teachings of that group because, you know, you, when you, um, you develop a linear thought pattern and you only think in terms of progress instead of, of um, you know, you, you take the indigenous people of the world, they, uh, they, their worldview is circular where life begins and you travel along this path and then, and then it ends and a new life begins. That's the reason why people didn't understand <clears throat> the Maya calendar uh, 
in, in back in December, you know, yeah. they were predicting the world was going to end. Well, the Maya know it's not going to end. It's just going to be a new beginning. Right. And, you know, but, but if you are thinking, if you are into the Western thought, which is linear instead of circular, there, you know, you just keep pushing forward, 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 where the Maya knew, and, and most native, native tribes believe this, is that life goes in a circle. Everything goes in a circle. And, um, so no, I don't, I, I don't, uh, adhere to Von Danikin's beliefs. Okay, that's and and I love how you flesh that out. Um, let, let me ask you this, though, while we're there on Hellier, he insists that if we were to down one of these UFOs, that we'd find ourselves in an interstellar war. Do you think there's any validity to that? Well, you know, I'm not that familiar with his work, and I, I, I don't know about that, but I do know that, uh, you know, Stephen Hawking has warned us that we shouldn't be out there trying to contact other uh, civilizations or other worlds because it may be that what they will do to us is the same thing that that uh, the European did to the American Indians when they found us. Right. And he has a lot of warnings out there. You, can, you know, he, he talks about it. Um, I know that I have interviewed people who tell me that, um, in fact, I, I, I interviewed someone who had worked at NASA back during the, the moon years, and, and, and he told me that, you know, while astronauts and scientists and everybody who works at NASA, 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 NASA. will yeah. go into, <laughs> excuse me, will go into the break rooms and talk about aliens and UFOs freely, but they will never publicly state what they know. And he said, you know, one of the greatest fears is that that uh, their technology is so advanced that we wouldn't stand a chance. And he firmly believes that um, they're not interested in humankind. They're not interested in in helping us out, as a lot of the UFO literature uh, professes, he said, you know, in his opinion, they're only interested in one thing, and that's the Earth. He said the Earth is a gem, and it's one of the most, you know, I mean, it's inhabitable, it's beautiful. And he said their only interest in us is that we don't destroy it. And I thought that was a different perspective. That is, that definitely is. You know, we've had several conversations with some really bright people on this show. We're fortunate uh, to be able to do that. And there's been kind of a consensus that anthropology has overlooked an idea. And that idea is that cultures grew out of religion. In other words, people grew together because of a supernatural belief. They began to share that belief. They then began to support one another. That began to build larger networks. And so we have society today um, as an outgrowth of, uh, you might say, how our brains are wired for religious experience. Now, 
I I have that in one compartment. In another compartment, I view the stories that you share. And many of these stories are about the gods that visit the earth. I mean, they, they are the progenitors of all life. They they bring life here. Is, is, is this meant to be uh, a metaphor, or is this meant to be literally referring to alien beings? Well, I think it's literally referring to someone who came from the stars. Um, but, you know, I, um, there's a... There's a small village in in Mexico up in the Chiapas. It's called Lambieto. And when you go there, I had these young Mexican college students uh, alert me uh, to the site. They said uh, there's a story in one of the villages of uh, a, a beam of light came down. And this man came down on the beam of light and he stayed on earth and he he took um, a native woman as a wife and they he built the city he helped the people build the city they irrigated the land they did all of these things oh i don't want to miss this story and we've got a hard break computer's going to kick us out in about 30 seconds so hold that one we'll keep everybody bated breath till we get back if you would like to know more about dr artie six killer clark and her life work and book sky people untold stories of alien encounters check out her website at sixkiller.com now we have a video for you during the break of dr clark discussing bigfoot and the alien connection, especially among the Maya. You can check it out by joining the chat room. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. What is one thing you wish you could change about yourself? What if you could make that change happen with the click of a button? With InnerTalk, Eldon Taylor's patented and scientifically proven and effective technology, change begins to happen the moment you hit play. InnerTalk works by priming how you talk to yourself and when your inner self-talk aligns with your outer goals. Anything becomes possible. Visit www.innertalk.com to find your towel today. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Artie Sixkiller Clark about her book, Sky People. Now, Dr. Clark, we just played your second musical choice, My People, sung by Bill Miller. Tell us about this one, why it's special to you. Well, I think it's a it's kind of an anthem for Native people. It's, um, you know, he he talks about how we were we were here before the ships ever set sail, and uh, that uh, we're, we may have been defeated and put on reservations, but but uh, that hasn't defeated who we are. Um, that we still stand strong and and uh, and <clears throat> we uh, we will remain. We will always be here. And uh, so you know, the, the, to me, it <clears throat> every time I hear it, it almost brings a tear to my eye because I think of uh, the greatness uh, of my people, um, of all Native people, and and um, the, the lives they lived and what was taken away from them was just, you know, enormous. Huge historical tragedy. Yes. <clears throat> All right, let's uh, let's turn back to you. Sometimes have survived better than others, you know. It's, it's uh, it, <clears throat> but for some it was devastating. I mean, well, for all, it was devastating, but for some more so, I think, than others. You know, you, you I, take I don't somebody know. You like know. the Lakota Sioux, who, you know, their children were forcibly taken away from them and put in boarding yeah. schools, and the loss, where you take another tribe that didn't experience that, <clears throat> you know, um, you know, the... It, it, they're totally different situations. Every uh, native group was dealt with differently. Some of them were totally massacred. You know, there are no descendants. You know, mm-hmm. so I, I'm I'm afraid that I mean you're in a better place than I am for that. I have some Native American Oglala Sioux and and some history in my own family, but. Um, you know, you are much closer to that. I just find the entire thing, the whole history, um, d- to be one of those blemishes on uh, on the nature, the higher nature of what I think of as humanness. It's, it's a genuine blemish on anything we can think of as being spiritual. It is a great miscarriage, uh, and, it, and and it could have all been done differently. And uh, so I don't know. I, I see that as an act of avarice and greed and selfishness, and uh, and I, you know, I'll leave it at that. Let's go to your book. Okay. I understand you've been told of uh, giants that visit the Earth, and we just showed a video of uh, you explaining uh, Sasquatch. I don't know where that video came from because I've never been on video, as far as I know. Well, it, you know, it's actually it's a it's a, uh, a a snippet from coast to coast, oh. an interview you gave, and and they made a YouTube out of it, and then they show pictures of the Sasquatch, you know, oh, Bigfoot <laughs> in it while you're talking. So <laughs> here you go. Now, I understand you're on record that there are some folks that 
actually come in here from outer space and hunt Sasquatch. Flesh that out for us. Tell us that yes, story. Uh, you know, I was told that down in in, uh, in uh, Guatemala. Um, he told me about uh, Elder. He told me about a story of, of these giants that lived in the jungle. And he said that uh, that one of the things that would happen is that uh, the, the giants basically stayed away from from the villages. They they um, although the the people occasionally would see them, they stayed away from the villages. This particular group of giants, because there were two different types, he pointed out in in the in the jungle. But anyway, he said that when these um, um, uh, when they would see these craft come from space, um, that uh, these giants would start to howl, and they could hear, uh, you know, the fighting going on in the jungle, and the people became, were very afraid they all would stay in their houses. And they felt that these giants that were coming from space had placed this other group of giants on Earth, and uh, that... Uh, that they were here to to check on them, and so he was he was uh, quite quite convinced that they had some connection with with the stars. Interesting. Uh-huh. Let's you know. I, you I, know, there I are should've... a lot of legends down there about you know uh, giants um, that walk the earth and, and who live in the jungles, and uh, it's quite fascinating. You know, when you get out into those little villages, you start talking to some of the people. Uh, my driver was telling me the story about these giants that that roamed the jungle, and he said and they had white jaguars as companions. And he said, if they catch you, you know, they'll 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 bite off your head and and spit it out like watermelon seeds. And I could just imagine, you know, this scene in my head. And he said, then you. You know, work your your soul roams the world, the, the earth forever, and um, so a lot of stories that that uh, that I would hear, you know, that were that were ancient stories and contemporary stories about giants in that part of the world. That's interesting. In our spotlight today, and, and we had a bit of an April Fool's spotlight that before you joined us on the air. Uh, yeah, I spoke about uh, Genesis, and uh, the book of Genesis tells us that there was a time that giants were here on the earth, and that they fornicated with mortal women, and that, you know, the, well, the gods, I should say, did, and, and that, that gave us giants, and, uh, and uh, it was just last week that there was a photograph uh, of some archaeologists with the skeletal remains of a giant that they were, they had found in Bulgaria, but it turned out to be a hoax. Do you oh, really? think? Yeah. Do you think these, you know, giants really exist? Well, I think they did at one time, and uh, and according to people in in uh, uh, you know Mesoamerica, they still exist. Um, you know, if you. Um, um, you know, there are stories among American Indians of giants. Yeah, if you put it that that uh, um, uh, uh, travel group out in Arizona or not in Arizona um, that uh, said that they they uh, forced the 
the red-haired giants into the cave and they destroyed them. Oh, um, yeah. That's a that's a uh, a story, and and uh, um, you know if you um, the the red-haired giants of Lovelock Can- Cave. Have you heard that story? Tell it, share it. I've heard bits of it. Please share it. Well, you know, out in western Nevada, on the outskirts of uh, the Humboldt, I think there's a a cave there that that is today is known as the Lovelock Cave. Um, and the cave is real, and you can drive to it uh, on a long dirt road near Lovelock, Nevada, uh, it, uh, which is a small farming town that's uh, right. that's there. And and uh, um, there there is a story that uh, the Paiute Indians, uh, uh, the this culture um, of the Paiute Indians, the Northern Paiute had gone in, was settled in this area, but there was a, a group of giants that, that lived there, um, and and they kept uh, attacking um, the Paiute Indians. And one day, along with the assistance of some other groups, um, the, the tribe called them the Sitika, uh, the, uh, the, the red-haired giants, and they... Mm-hmm. they uh, uh, got them all into this cave, and they set the, the fires in front of the cave, and, and they told them that they could come out, and they wouldn't harm them, but they had to change their ways, and they didn't come out, and they were all dead. And Sarah Winnemucca, um, who was uh, the first Native American woman to really write about, uh, you know, she she decided that she was going to uh, there were too many anthropologists and archaeologists out there writing the history of the Paiutes. Um, and she said that, uh, uh, so she decided to write her own history to correct all the, the misinformation. And she tells this story in her book. Um, and then she she also says that, that this group had passed before uh, the Paiutes had come there, and they were told this story by another group of people who were there, who they lived with. And and she tells a story of, of this group of, of people that they married the Paiute women, and they had children. And the day came when they told them that they had to go north. And they took with them the children that looked like them. Now, they were fair-skinned. And so they took with them the children that looked most like them, and they left behind the ones that looked mostly like the Paiute. And she said in the book, they climbed a ladder to the sky and disappeared and never returned. And she said, that is why today among the Paiute you see the light-skinned people. They are the descendants of the people who are here. While we're on Nevada, there's a lot of Indian lore there, obviously. Uh, The Anastasi Indian, uh, supposedly, yeah, they ascended, so say the legends, just outside of Las Vegas, a little community called Overton, the ruins, etc., of their communities are there, and they claim that they, they ascended. What does that mean? In Native American. Well, movement. you know, I'm not so sure about that because, you know, there's an awful lot of stories out there that talk about 
that the you know the Anasazi were part of the Hopi, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and they they uh, um, the story is that at one time. Um, and, and this is a story that's not commonly talked about, but I'll tell you a story an elder told me, okay? Okay, And please. at one time they lived in Mexico, and they started north. And because these people had come in that were cannibalistic, and they just wanted to escape them, so they started north. And the story is, that at least some people think, that they actually stopped and made cities along the way. And some people even tied the Hopi to Palenque in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Now, Palenque is an interesting interesting place because Palenque, you know, they, they, as you read in my book, they talk about Botan who came here, uh, you know, that he had a this... Uh, elevator-like thing that he would go into and he would go to the stars. Others say that there's no truth to that at all, that, you know, this is a a story that was made up. And anyway, it was supposed to be a place where all the great knowledge of the world would be stored, of the universe would be stored. But after it was built, nobody would, the builders wouldn't leave, and so the knowledge was never stored there. Well, the Hopi, they say that the Hopi stopped and and, and and like I say, this is a story I heard it from an elder in Mexico. That they didn't stop; that they just kept on going. And when they got to what is now New Mexico, they decided that that they were going to split up. And and that in splitting up, they would each group would look for. Um, uh, a place for them to make their permanent home. And then they would come back together and they would meet at a certain point and they would decide where they were going to live. And the Anasazi was one of that group. And when they were past, they were supposed to leave. If they had passed a certain place, they were supposed to leave the sign of the Cocapella. You're familiar with that form? Yes. And that, that would alert the other tribal members that they had already passed here and didn't choose that. Right. But at at some point, they all came together. The Anasazi came back together. And if you look at, you know, what science tells us, at least, that the Anasazi left because they the drought, uh, that there was a hundred-year drought that covered right. uh, Mexico, south uh, southwestern United States, and drove the people to areas where at least there was some kind of water. Same thing happening now, huh? Right. <laughs> Indeed, it is. <clears throat> let's uh, let's do this. I, I've got so many questions in front of me here that I want to ask you, and I'm looking at the clock and realizing that you know, we're you know chewing through time like there's no tomorrow. You, you you have two books. I mean, Sky People and Star People. Why the different names? How did you decide? I mean distinguish that for us. Well, I think they're one and the same, but whenever American Indians in the United States, uh, indigenous people in the United States and Alaska, referred to them most often as star people. But when I went into 
uh, Central America, they referred to them as, as Scott people. So that's the difference. There really is no difference in, although, uh, you know, there, there is a, a, a difference in that the indigenous people of Central America looked upon them more or less as gods. And in the United States, they did not look upon them as gods. So the Native American population within the United States sees them as alien visitors? See them as, as ancestors of people who came before them, people who are traveling the universe, uh, travelers, you know, uh, not someone who is a god that is teaching gotcha. them anything. Or Gotcha. So let's, let's just take, you know, Cherokee and Choctaw, which you obviously can speak very forthright from. Well, Your not ancestor- so much. You know, one of the things I need, I'm of Cherokee Choctaw heritage. But you know, I'm also uh, have German and French, and <laughs> okay, all right. Well, <laughs> okay. so I'm not a spokesman for for the Cherokee and Choctaw, but I, I do am familiar with their stories. But uh, from my grandmother, but but not so much. Uh, I am okay, my well, l- let me spread it out a little more then, <laughs> and we'll just say the indigenous people of what we call America today. Okay, those that. You would see your heritage as being literally from the stars. You, you, you're, you would trace your genealogy, if you could, to somewhere away from Earth. Have I got that correct? I think you're right there, yes. Okay. Whereas when we go to um, South America, we, go, we, we look at the Maya, for example... They view um, sky people uh, as being equivalent maybe to like the Greek godhead, the gods that descended and came down here and there were multiple, a pantheon of gods. Have I got that correct? Well, you've got it correct to a point. Um, I'm talking about the the sky people that came down and... and, uh, you know, formed villages or stayed and married that came from the sky. Um, but there were stories of people who, um, like the Maya said, you know, we traveled the universe. We had a star map. We knew our way around the universe. We chose this place to live. So they were not gods, uh, so to speak. They were people who, who came from another world and chose to live here. Okay. But I guess the point that I'm getting to, Dr. Clark, is if you believe that, uh, you know, uh, there are gods that came from the heavens and, uh, you know, um, those were the people that have intermarried even and and they're the ones that you worship, then it would be natural for you to think that when you crossed over, when you left this lifetime, you would maybe travel back through space, uh, passing perhaps the Milky Way galaxy. And isn't that the kind of story that you hear from the Maya? Unpack that for us, will you? Well, I, I think you, they call it Chivalba, and you, you know, you go through the underworld, and then you, you pass the Milky Way, and you go to Chivalba, um, so yeah, I mean that's that's a um, 
but you also have that uh, in a lot of the Native American cultures that believe that when you die, you walk the Milky Way. That's the path to the to the next the next place. How would you contrast that or, or compare it? And I know you you use both of those techniques. Uh, how, how do you how would you contrast or compare that with say the typical uh, NDE report uh, that we hear from uh, people today? What's the NDE report? I'm not oh, sure I'm sorry. And, and the, the near-death experience, oh. you know, and the oh. typical, you know, here's the white light and the tunnel and uh, and so forth. Well, uh, I think near-death experiences, you come back, right? Yeah. So when you walk course. the Milky Way, you don't come back. You know, you're dead. Okay. All right. I guess <laughs> let me let me see if I can reframe <laughs> this again, Prof. <laughs> Here we are, all right? When, you know, uh, the, us honky folks aren't the only ones to have NDEs. Native Americans have near-death experiences, too. My question is, is there a cultural difference? Do you Are you familiar with uh, people, who uh, Native Americans, who have had a near-death experience talking about moving through space past the Milky I, Way? I've never interviewed anybody that talked about a near-death experience, uh, except one person, and he, he told a similar story of what, um, what everybody tells is that he went there, uh, you know, he, he was in an automobile accident. He was in a canyon. There was nobody around, nobody to save him. And he lay there and he died and he met his mother. And his mother told him that he had to go back. That it wasn't his time yet. And so he came back and Moments later, there was a rescue. Someone rescued him. So that you know, so it's a very similar to the near-death experiences you read about and you hear about, you know. And and um, so I don't know that there's a cultural difference in that kind of experience. Sounds like there isn't. My curiosity, of course, would have to do with. Well, instead of seeing a white light, am I seeing the bright stars? But, all right. He talked about, you know, seeing a white light, you know. His story was, was somewhat, you know, very much like, but he didn't see Jesus. He saw his mother and his mother, who had died um, several years before, told him that he had to go back. It wasn't his all time right. yet. Well, we've got another one of those breaks coming up. We're glad you tuned in today. We know you have many choices, and we're grateful that you chose to join us. We love your feedback, so please join me on Facebook and or drop me an email at Eldon, E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com. I love sharing your letters and comments on the show, and that's a great way for you to participate. We'll be right back following this short break. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Hi, I'm Eldon Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by 
joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. That's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. We've been chatting with Dr. Artie Sixkiller-Clark about her research in book, Sky People. In this half hour, we will take your calls. So if you have questions, give us a call or advance your comments and questions in our chat room. And remember, I love your feedback and a great place for that is on Facebook. So I invite you to join me there today. All right, Dr. Clark, we just played The Cranberries Performing Dreams. Tell us, why is this one important to you? And again... How does it inform us about who you are? Well, I think what it what it says, you know, it says my life is changing every day in every possible way. Uh, though my dreams is never quite as it seems, never quite as it seems. I, I, you know, I think that you know you can ex- you go through life saying, well, you you have a plan and this is what's going to happen and this is this is my dream and. And uh, but it it never ends up that way. There there are roads that you take that you never thought you would travel. I never thought I'd write a, a book about UFOs. Uh, but it's just that one little thing that intervenes in your life that makes all the difference. And I could have chosen not to listen 
and taken a different path, but just that one suggestion made all the difference in my life. And so it wasn't what I had retired and thought I was going to travel the world. Mm. And I was well, just, you know. Maybe you are traveling the world. You, you, you <laughs> volume one, you know, you went to South America. <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna get out of, out of uh, the cold of Montana and, and live in Hawaii six months out of the year, not, not go through the jungles of Central America. I mean, it was just, to me, that, that's what this, what these lyrics mean. I, I happen to think Montana is one of the prettiest places in the world. Oh, so. I wouldn't trade it for anything. You know, so many people live here and work here, and then when they retire, they're gone. But I said, <laughs> I just, I can't, I can't leave. It's just, it's my home. I'm not too far from you, and my wife and I made a conscious choice to move here. I mean, we actually looked at all the different places in the country, and, you know, what we wanted was a place to raise our boys. It had, you know, good schools and all the, you know, the things that you sure. generally need in a big city. So we ended up over in Spokane. So oh, we're like right in the corner, you know. Yeah, I used to. Yeah, a little over an hour, school. and I'm in Montana. I used to teach school in Calogato. Oh, is that right? I was an English teacher in Colorado, so I used to travel to Spokane all the time. Yeah, you come down here to get groceries. That's a right, joke. right. Piece. You know, Almost, I yeah. anything that was cheaper because, you know, I was a teacher, didn't make much money, so, and it gave me a chance to get out and, you know, there weren't any dress shops or things like that at that time in Colorado. Right. Okay, let, let's do this. Now, you've heard stories from many, many people about aliens visiting us. Right. Why are they doing that? Well, I think there's there's several agendas. I think, uh, I think some aliens come here uh, as a part of research. Uh, uh, one person told me that, that he was he was uh, told that you know they have been monitoring Earth for a long time. Looking at the, you know, the differences in what's occurring in the environment, uh, what's occurring in terms of evolution to to people. Um, one story I will tell in one of the next books that I write is is a story I was told by a man who said that um, they say that that uh, that humans aren't progressing. And when I asked him to describe that, he said that that evolutionary they don't believe that we are changing the way they are monitoring life forms on other planets and that we are not progressing the way other life forms are progressing um, so I found that that quite interesting I think there are those um, uh, one one elder told me that the the grays for example do kidnap people and that one of the things that's happened in their society he says he told me they had a um, uh, they lived on a on a much smaller planet and he said that uh, uh, they are um, what they did with their advancement of technology is they literally uh, removed uh, emotions and all of those kind of things from from their species and in doing so, they became so mechanical and so technologically advanced, but then they lost what we would term their humanity. 
And so one of the things that they're doing in capturing our DNA and, and different parts, different specimens, is trying to recreate that and bring that back to, to their planet because, you know, and I, I keep thinking about that over and over and over again. I'm haunted by his story because you think of what we're doing in terms of technology. I mean, we can almost build the bionic man today, you know. I mean, yeah. we're replacing body parts and we're talking about, you know, putting things, you know, um, computers in our brain and, and, you know, being able to call up data through our eyes and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and recombinant DNA and cloning. And, oh, yeah. Uh, and, and, I mean, and, I'm just haunted by his story because, mm-hmm. you know, he, he, uh, he, he told me, just, I think, goodness, this is America maybe 25 years from now. I think it's very close, you know, to being able to do that. Um, you know, we might be able to live forever, but what good is it if we've lost our humanity? And, and and he seemed to indicate that's what had happened. Uh, so they come back and they take specimens and they do all kinds of things. Another another group, another story I was actually told about um, a group that the scientists who say they don't approve of the abduction and the scientific tests that are going on, but there's really nothing they can do about it because you know war would would not be something that they would want to engage in. And even though they discourage it, and their scientists, even on their planet, have tried to help them, you know, improve the kind, you know, the uh, that they they've been unsuccessful. So I think there are the observers. I think there are the scientists. I think there are those who who uh, 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 do not who are performing tests. And then I think there might be those out there who are simply sitting back and and watching to see if maybe we're going to destroy ourselves. And maybe if that is to happen, they will step in and own the planet. You know? Now, it, it sounds like from what you're describing, I mean, because you've talked about the greys and you've talked about the lizards, <clears throat> lizard people, we have heard that there are different alien races visiting the Earth. And perhaps one of the reasons that... Mm, Open hostilities have not uh, uh, come to occur. Is that these different races have competing agendas, and and in a sense, they don't want a war with each other. But that's uh, that's what's stopping them from maybe doing what they would otherwise do to Earth. I mean, how do you say? Are there different races? Is that your well, I think input? There are, you know, definitely. And and with different agendas, and mm-hmm. and they are not native to the same solar system or the same planet. No, or? not necessarily. And I think that's the reason why, you know, that you uh, um, you you see such differences in in uh, in the the creatures that are are uh, you know defined. You know, one of the things that's that's uh, that's that's uh, that appears to be obvious that they have a tremendous mind control power that they can uh, they telepath- uh, telepathically communicate that's almost uh, among all groups uh, and perhaps they do that because it's a matter of of, uh, of translation um, uh, 
they uh, one of the things that appears to be common is that they interfere with electrical uh, systems. You know, uh, um, you know, televisions go off, radios become static, uh, engines cut out, lights blink. I mean, that's a common thing that that I hear. Uh, so there are, there are a, a lot of things that are going on out there. And when I talk to, you know, a lot of native people, they'll say, well, you know, people just need to watch the skies. You know, too many people are looking down at computers and all these electronic gadgets. You know, it would be amazing what they could say if they just sit out at night and watch the skies. And, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. In reading your book, I have to ask you this, in, in, in reading your book, I get the impression that you believe the Mayan civilization was founded by an alien race. Well, and, and if I were to believe, some of the elders tell me that. Yeah? And some of the elders tell me no. So, you know, I haven't made up my mind about whether, you know, that is true or not. But uh, certainly there is a strong possibility. Uh, some of the elders, you know, say we came from the east and that the land that we had was destroyed and so we came from the east. Now, the, and they don't speak to where they came from before. Other elders say, well, that's only part of the story. We came to this land from the stars and the land that we settled was destroyed by earthquakes and tsunamis and then we moved here. And we rebuilt the cities. And then a catastrophe happened here. And what we did is we didn't, we abandoned the, our cities and we went into the jungle to survive. Now, if you look at what, what scientists are telling us is that that part of, of Central America and the United States went through a hundred year drought. And the people were forced to abandon where they lived. Now, if that is the case, and there's no water, and of course, if you've been to that part of the world, they have jungles, but they also have huge areas. I mean, you look at the Yucatan, you know, they hardly have any water unless you go down into the cenotes, where, which is where the people get the water. But, but it's an arid, desert-like part of the world. Well, say they had a huge hurricane that wiped out everything, or they had a, a hundred-year drought. Um, you would go into the jungle, you know, and one elder was talking to me about, he said, you know, you think that civilizations last forever, but they don't. And he says, the day will come where there will be no United States of America. And 3,000, 5,000, 10,000 years from now, an archaeologist may come upon your city of New York and start to dig, and they will find your Statue of Liberty, and they will say, oh, this must be the goddess of flame. Mm -hmm. And he said, that's how scientists look at our ancient cities. And all great civilizations fall, and it depends upon those survivors that are going to continue on and to maintain the history and the stories of that of their of their lives. And he said, I believe what happened to the Maya is a great catastrophe befell the Maya. They left their cities because their cities were, you know, 60 to 100,000 people. They couldn't support them in terms of food. There was 
no water, and they, they simply disappeared into the jungle in family groups where they could survive. And, uh, and I think that's probably what did happen. Well, let, let me ask you this. I'm going to have you flesh this out uh, for us on the air. You refer to the Mayans as being different ethnically um, than other groups. What do you mean by that? Well, I think they were different because, you know, um, if you look at the Aztecs, the Aztecs had their god, Quetzalcoatl, you know, who was supposed right. to leave and come back. Well, the Maya said they didn't, they didn't get their knowledge from anybody on earth. They brought their knowledge with them. And so they don't have anybody coming in that's going to save the people. Or, you know, and so, so they said we knew advanced civilizations. We were not impressed with Cortez because we knew advanced civilizations because we were one. Cortez was an advanced, but see, because the Aztecs believed that their white god was going to come back, they were able to conquer them. But the Maya, who who simply recognized them for what they were, an invading force, they weren't able to conquer them. All right, I, I'm gonna. I, I'm hogging your time, and I and, and I would continue to do so. But in fairness, I'm going to go to the, some of the questions out of our chat room. Okay. Mark says, "What about the notion that pyramids were created by aliens to be used as part of navigation?" Well, I, you know, Mark, I can't speak to that because I don't know uh, if that is the case or not, and and. Uh, no one has told me a story like that, so I'm sorry I, I can't answer that. Time for you to travel the world and go to Egypt, Dr. Clark. You've got to get down there and compare <laughs> I this. I think I'm getting too old for all this travel. <laughs> I don't. All right, CBS. Not uh, too many years ago, there were a spate of stories from Mexico and South America of sightings of giant black triangular-shaped UFOs just silently hovering. Did any of the hinterland tribes that our guest visited mention similar sightings of triangular-shaped floating sky objects? Yes, yes, there were uh, there were uh, cases and there are stories in the book about triangular-shaped uh, objects. There is one story in the book about it was told by uh, a young woman who was uh, who was uh, uh, she was both Mexican and American. Her mother was an American who had married a, a Mexican, and he was half uh, Maya and half uh, Spanish. They call them mestizos. And, and uh, anyway, she told about this. She told about this uh, uh, craft that uh, this V-shaped craft that came into uh, to where their their hacienda onto their land. Okay. Yeah, you know... Uh, it's one of my favorite stories because, you know, uh, she told me that, that that spacecraft took her brother and never returned him. Uh, she t- Say that again? She told you what? Oh, well, she said that this craft hovered over there their, in their backyard of their hacienda and that three balls of light descended from it. 
when she saw it, she woke her sister and her brother. Her brother was older by, than she was by two years, and her sister was a couple of years younger. And she said that they stood on um, the veranda and they, they watched uh, these balls of light. And she said they were very warm and comforting and inviting. And she said all of a sudden her brother says, I'm going to go out. I'm, and she said they materialized into three human-like characters. And she said then there was a flash of light and the brother was gone. And they have searched for him. Her her, husband, her father, who was from a quite wealthy family there in, in Mexico, uh, had put up rewards and was waiting for uh, some kind of a, uh, a demand, a ransom. Mm-hmm. And it never came forth. So uh, she believes that he's still traveling the universe with these travelers. And, and she hopes that his his whatever he's doing is so important that he just doesn't have time to come back. And she says her father still, still looks for him. Very sad story. That would be a lot more comforting, I believe, than the idea that he's being dissected somewhere. Yeah, well, and that's what they told themselves to believe. You know, uh, she says every time we see a UFO, I think it's my brother coming back just to check on us. At least that's what I tell myself, she says. And he just doesn't have time to stop in and see it. So it was a very, very sad story because, you know, she was a young girl who blames herself because she said if I had woken if I had left him asleep it wouldn't have happened and she said I tried to stop him but and she said her father doesn't believe a word of it he thinks that you know it's just a fantasy of a uh, you know she was I think 14 when it happened this that is a shame Dr. Clark I love your books thank you and uh I want everybody to be able to know uh, more about you, uh, where they can obtain your book, uh, what they can find on your website, and what they can expect is going to be your next pursuit, your next uh, exciting endeavor. So please share that information with us now. Well, what I'm working on right now is, uh, you know, all the stories in in my first book were from uh, stories that were told by by uh, people who lived on reservations. But 78% of the American Indian population in the United States, uh, they do not live on Indian reservations. Uh, They live in cities and small rural areas and in college towns and, you know, just throughout America. Although, you know, many are are, uh, in some of the large metropolitan areas like Chicago and L.A. Quickly, we only have about a minute. Okay, so I'm writing story. The next book will be about stories from. Um, Great. Non. And your website is sixkiller.com, and I promise not to ask you why that name. So I won't. Okay. Uh, I'll leave that in suspense. Everybody has to go to your website though, and there you they can make the inquiry. Is that that's, fair, Doctor Clark? That's fair. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for your work and <laughs> thanks for your work and your willingness to share it all with us, Dr. Clark. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank our guest once again and all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show 
and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. And remember, if you have comments on our show, do please let us know. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment. Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.